Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. For new and returning listeners, you may know you can find the podcast on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com or on Twitter at minoritiesinpub. I am so happy to introduce Namrata Podar, who writes fiction and nonfiction, is an interviews editor for Quelly Journal, a journal we love, and she's taught literature and writing at UCLA. She's had numerous publications at Poets and Writers, Lit Hub, Electric Literature, Kenyon Review, The Best Asian Short Stories, and we are here to talk about her debut novel that came out in March borderless two words which was a finalist for the feminist press's louise merriweather prize and is long listed for the center of fiction first novel prize and it was published by 713 books by our good friend leland chuck so it's funny because namrata and i have spoken a lot you're like one of those internet buddies eventually i might meet like we did meet in person i think we met at an awp we did very briefly yes yes we did (laughs) portland was it portland I think it was, yeah. I was like, I knew it. (laughs) I was like, oh, we haven't met. I'm like, no, that's not right. It wasn't passing. It was a very kind of drive-by situation, was it not? It was. You you know, that's the first time we met. You were at a publishing panel, and then I think we were making room. Your group was making room for this other panelist to get in. I was like, hey, Jen! Mm. You know, after all our interactions, I was so excited to see you, but I know you were also, I think, rushed for your next, yeah, your next meeting, probably at AWP. But it was fun. It was so lovely, just those few minutes as well. Finally, kind of putting a face, right, to the name and all the emails we exchanged. Right, because we have those avatars, and it's like, I know this avatar. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. And now you have your debut novel out, and it's a beautiful book, and it's a beautiful looking book. Like, that cover is really, really good. I really love this, because as people know by now, I am a bit of a cover snob, but maybe I won't even say snob. I do judge a book by its cover. And to me, there's no excuse for bad covers, but I also understand that this is very subjective. But something really hits with Borderless, with the back and the image and just kind of how everything works. Was the artist the IPOC? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you like the cover, being a cover snob, as you said. And in this case, I would say, please do judge my book by its cover. So I love the cover art. He is Harshad Marate is the cover artist, and he's of South Asian origin. Uh, divides his time between the US and India, but based in Mumbai for now. So I did love very much the vision kind of he brought forth on the cover as well after, you know, the conversations we had on what the cover might look like. Mm. So you published your debut. I mean, you announced it. Was it a year or was it two years before? Because I know we were in the throes of the pandemic when you did announce that your book was coming out. Like, I mean, we still are at the same time. I feel like there's pre-vaccine and post-vaccine pandemic, right? I understand it might be a hard thing to announce a book deal, which is something you worked so hard for in the midst of such a global thing. But it is something to really be celebrated. So would you mind talking a little bit about how Borderless found 713 or maybe how 713 found Borderless? Because it says in your 
profile and what I read earlier was that it was a finalist for the Meriwether Prize. And mm-hmm. that is the feminist press's prize for debut prose right. for people of color, specifically women and gender nonconforming or non-binary people of color. It sounds like you were trying to find the right home for this before 713 happened. Yeah. So I think what we're talking about is the publishing journey. And you, Jen, you're no stranger to the publishing scene and our current history with it as well. So the manuscript at that time, 2020, that's when Leland Chuck reached out to me. Yeah, very much um, around June in the middle of the pandemic when it was still so new and we were still figuring out what do we do as a planet right next with this virus. That's when he reached out with a contract. But I had been shopping the manuscript for about two years until then. And Feminist, when it was a finalist for the Feminist Prize's Meriwether Award, that was what? I think it was 2018. And then in 2020, I got the contract with Leland Chuck. So, I mean, long story short, it was making it rounds. I was submitting everywhere. And at some point, I was submitting everywhere by myself as I realized that a book like this is not a big five publisher book. It really is a small press slash indie press slash university press book. And the moment I realized that, I started just sort of looking for the right press that might be attuned to the sensibility in the book and started submitting. And that's when in 2020, 20, I'd even forgotten <laughs> about my submissions because I kept submitting and I'm not one of those people who keeps a tab of rejections I receive because if I did that, I think I'd stop writing altogether. So the submissions were happening over time. And then in 2020, I was surprised just to receive an email from Leland Chuck that, hey, I really like the manuscript. Where is it at? Does it have a publisher? And I said, no, it doesn't. And I was thrilled that received an offer from an indie press who has a pretty good track record at this point with BIPOC authors, but also that I had an Asian American editor and publisher interested in my book. That meant a lot to me at that point. And it still does. And that's how it happened. You said you didn't see Borderless as a big five book. What does that mean to you in terms of what you felt you would get or what you felt a big five publisher could do for your book? Because it is being distributed by HarperCollins India, which I don't know if HarperCollins is a big deal in India. I know that here it's like one of those publishers that dominates the market. Right. And it is there as well. I would say it is one of the big publishers in India. What I meant was it was not a big five book in the US or the North American context. And what do I mean by that? I felt, I mean, so much of my nonfiction over the years, but also my work as interviews editor for Quayley as well, both of them have been talking pretty openly about the current landscape and the demographics of publishing in North America and gatekeeping, but also which are the kind of books, right, that get the bigger deals, which are the ones that also in many ways bag the prestigious literary awards very often. They are novels, and when they are novels, they follow certain 
rules of storytelling, certain assumptions of storytelling that are a given in many ways in a North American setting. This is what I teach about. This is what I talk about in my interviews and in my nonfiction as well. And I felt those assumptions of storytelling, a book or a novel like Borderless does not follow to that degree. In fact, it consciously, systematically challenges those assumptions. So in that respect, I didn't think it would be a book that would be of interest to most of the editors in Big Five because it doesn't obey those assumptions, you know, in very obvious ways. And this is not to make a statement on the editors that, hey, editors are not acquiring books that don't follow mainstream assumptions of storytelling. This is just how I saw it. But the second one was also the use of English language. The English in Borderless plays so much, so much with different cadences of English. And it's so inflected by different Indian languages, but also slang in Indian languages. And of course, writers like Salman Rushdie or Amitav Ghosh have done that. And their books are being released by the Big Five in the West. So why wouldn't my book then in my head or in my reasoning? And I felt like one of the reasoning for that was they're already now established authors known for their experimentation with English language. In a way, a debut brown woman author entering the North American landscape. You know, I mean, I I feel like those are the kinds of liberties I was not sure I would get by publishing at a big five. And that's why at some point, after having shopped my manuscript to so many agents who enjoyed it as well, and who told me, hey, this is really good, but we don't see it. We don't see ourselves selling this to the big ones. So I think so much of my own thinking about the book came from my own shopping process, but also my critical reasoning, like I said, when I teach, when I write and looking in the landscape and what are some of the big books, what are some of the books with big deals that are coming out, right? Big publishing deals coming out. What kind of storytelling are they following? And does my book follow that? I didn't feel it does. I still don't think it does. And that's why I felt in North American setting, it would be much more attuned to indie presses, given, like I said, my own history with shopping the manuscript. But then, like you said, in the South Asian context, it did come out of a big five. And that makes sense to me because in many ways, the English you know, the the play with English language that's happening in Borderless, it would seem a little unconventional, maybe, to the mainstream publishing scene in North America. In a way, it would not seem as unconventional within the South Asian setting. So there, I did not feel that the book necessarily belongs to an indie press scene. But over here, I did. So it's so much about the context and the aesthetics borderless is kind of playing within the book, the language, the play with English language once again, that it's felt suited to different kinds of market in these two different historic and geographic cultural settings of North America versus South Asian publishing. I remember being on a panel with a few other people, editors and one agent. And one of the questions in the audience was similar to what you heard, right? Is I don't think I can sell this or I don't know how to sell this or lovely writing, da, 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 da. Mm. And I said, you know, that doesn't really help you in your writing process, does it? (laughs) Marketability does not really help you in terms of craft, I felt. Right. Hearing that and hearing you say this too, it sounds like that kind of really kind of provides a definition for what 
the industry, like royal we type when I say the industry, uh, is going to provide you as an artist because to me, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of if someone tells a writer, I can't sell this, then the writer has several options, right? Mm-hmm. Like they can continue to pursue, can no longer pursue, or can try to write something that can sell, which may not help you again from a craft perspective, from a product perspective, but not necessarily a craft perspective. So that's very interesting to hear and actually kind of process a bit more as you were speaking. With 713, I saw on their website, they say that, you know, this is authors for authors. So kind of a FUBU environment or a bias. And I do think that is a very different way to approach, especially being an author who edits, but an author who acquired. It's like you have so much more empathy <laughs> for writers. And you just kind of want to make them okay and be like, do you understand what we're going to do? And da, 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 da. So do you feel like that was also part of that experience with 713? Was it being authors who are doing the business of publishing, which we kind of end up doing anyway, once the machine starts rolling literally and figuratively, that you really understood what 713 was going to do for you and Borderless. I think I discovered as I went along what 713 books would do for authors. And what we're really talking about here, I, I think I'm completely with you, what we're talking about here with the process of shopping the manuscript, right, for a home is craft versus product or craft versus marketability. And this is such a classic for writers of color, BIPOC writers, that marketability wants to follow certain aesthetics of storytelling. That's what drives right the marketability, except that that aesthetics comes from a certain history. Coming back to this idea of craft versus marketability, right? Like marketability is so connected to certain forms of storytelling, what kind of stories would sell, but also the language, what's the right language, what would be sort of consumed by the widest audience possible. And all of that pertains also to questions of craft. And that was the world that I was building in my book. I mean, those assumptions of marketability and the kind of language or the kind of form of storytelling was against, in many ways, the kind of world that I was building for my book. So I had to listen less to the market and what would sell in the market and more about the world that I was building in this book. And so those were not much in harmony. And that's where I realized that, you know, this is maybe not a big five book. And with 713 Books and Leiling Chuck and having a publisher and an acquisitions editor who is also an author was he naturally, without me having to explain any of this, understood this divorce that many writers of color, Black, Indigenous and other writers of color already feel within their writing process. So I felt like that was the very refreshing part that while going through the manuscript and seeing perhaps at some level, this divorce, he didn't find that to be a problem. He knew this to be sort of a natural thing. So, so much within this world, I didn't have to explain my editor in any ways. And I had an editor who didn't even demand any explanation. And thank God is any translation of these kinds of things within the book. And that was the most fruitful part or most satisfying part of working with an editor like him. And then when you say like what 
signing the contract, did you know what a press like 713 would do for your book? That's also at the level of marketing, right? That I didn't know. But Leland, my editor, was very honest about those conversations. I appreciated that. And then the rest was just sort of discovering as we went along. But he was honest right from the start. As a debut author, that's the best at this, that point I could expect, I felt. And also, I feel like there's just so much care in ensuring a writer can find their pathway. I've been learning more about book coaching, uh-huh. which I've heard about, but I didn't really understand, like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Especially coming from an editor or critique space, it's just like, what do you mean a coach? But there are book coaches, and there are phenomenal book coaches in this world, like Nino. I will make sure to link people to for this episode as well. And the unicorn club that she has going. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. And I feel like that also needs to happen now that I know more about it and more about what it does to kind of propel writers to have this confidence in the work. Because do you think Namrata from 10, 15 years ago, who may have finished a book like Borderless, would have still had that wherewithal to understand, well, I'm not thinking about your market. I'm going to publish this book the way it needs to be published or that maybe there might have been influence in that because there's an assuredness I feel like one has and it sounds like you had about what this book was to not be swayed by that. Yeah, and there's a reason. No, what you're talking about, Namrata of 10, 15 years would not have that kind of confidence to tell herself that this is what the book needs to be. This is what the book is asking me to be, and I need to stand by this. And there is a reason this book took 17 years and almost half my life into making is precisely because of this. And what quote-unquote minority writer hasn't grappled with this, right, in their journey, when so much of what is understood as good storytelling in the mainstream is informed by a certain history with which the history of the quote-unquote minority writer doesn't coincide so neatly with. And there's always this long long layover within one's path, especially with debut books by writers of colors of questioning, right? Um, How does, you know, how does this book kind of fit with this dominant narrative in many ways? So that was why the back and forth between the voices in my head, that was so mediated in some ways by the market forces and the voices within the book that were telling me, this is what this book needs to be. This is what you need to do as an author. And then there were those voices mediated by the market telling me, this is what you need to do as an author. That back and forth push and pull was constantly happening over the years. I think what helped me eventually have that assuredness was a training in literary criticism. So I come to fiction writing very late in my life, speaking of debut writers, I guess, and through a training in literary criticism. And much of my training has been looking at the world, like decolonization, like 20 years of my writing, nonfiction, criticism, teaching also has all centered around decolonization and what writers of color, especially from Asia and Africa and the Caribbean have done, you know, and recently, very recently, maybe the last five years, also writers of color in North America, right? What have these writers done to kind of 
push against those mainstream conventions of storytelling. So I did have a strong academic background, so to speak. I was teaching about this for several years, writing most of my scholarly training has been in this. And I think when the voices of the market forces were speaking in my head, there was also the voices as a literary critic that could challenge those voices. And I think that those kind of, you know, navigating these different voices right in one's head took a while, but that assuredness eventually certainly came from the training in in literary criticism and looking at this rich tradition we've had since two centuries, but certainly since 1950s onward, with the history of decolonization, a rich tradition with black and brown writing across the world that has not, you know, that has sort of given a fuck, right, or resisted very actively in their storytelling, what the market tells them to do with storytelling. So yeah, just coming back to why 17 years, right, I often ask myself, like, did this short book of 160, 170 pages need to have taken 17 years. And in my case, it was certainly sort of going back and forth between these voices and the different ideologies that these voices stand for within my head. (laughs) And writing a tight book takes time because, you know, we could kind of just have these expansive works. Right. And then you're like, this could be shorter. (laughs) That was always something I said to authors too, or still say and say to myself is you could say this so much more succinctly. Why have you not figured that out yet? But sometimes you can't. So I think having less than 200 pages also makes it great to have an economical book that hits the point. And also I keep hearing from librarians too. Shorter can be helpful for the reluctant reader. Right, right. And especially, I had a very hard time reading at the height of the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. Give me something short. It needs to be poetry. It needs to be really short stuff. Or it needs to be graphic novels or graphic memoirs so that I can get the visuals and minimal text because I just couldn't absorb stuff. It's so funny. It's like, why did this take so it's like it takes how long it takes right and I agree you know, and that's what I'm talking about right like these voices in our head and this is mm-hmm. one of the things internalized is it what internalized patriarchy speaking in my head when I say what you know I'm questioning right the amount of time it took to write the book as well because somewhere in my head I'm telling this other voice is speaking saying okay this is not the great American novel this is not the Russian novel <laughs> then why did this debut book take so long so clearly those are sort of voices of the dominant narrative speaking in my head. But you're right. I mean, I think speaking of long and short novels, I also felt that the aesthetic of this book, but also the kind of reader that I've become, I think we live in the digital age, we are in a global pandemic. And I'm asking myself, really, I mean, the distracted reader, how many of us are not distracted readers anymore? So in many ways, this fragmented novel to me reflected not just my own evolution as a reader, but maybe as evolution as readers for many of us who are, right, in a global pandemic, but also in the age of social media. Are we going to read novels in the same way that we read in the 19th century? Are we really going to continue? I'm asking myself this question with the novel. Of course, a book will be as long as it needs to be, as short as it needs to be. None of us get to decide that. But a part of me is also asking as general readers, will we really continue to read novels the way we read back then, right, with the Russians or the realists of the 19th century? I don't know. A part of me is like, maybe the fragmented novel is the future. I don't know. But maybe I'm saying this to make myself feel better (laughs) as a debut author. 
I'm all for fragmentations, short story collections, all of it, hybrids. I love all of that stuff, especially because it's not easy to construct. I mean, no book is easy to construct. There's an intentionality that goes along with doing something that's quote unquote, not straightforward, so to speak. So props to you (laughs) for for that. Is it fair to ask you to try to summarize Borderless? I always say, I I always feel hesitant because I mean, sometimes you can't do like the elevator pitch and it's about this, this and this, but sometimes it's really hard for authors to just kind of explain what the book is. And you said it's a fragmented novel. Publishers Weekly called it a novel and story. So I imagine there might be some discussion. (laughs) Right. Um, Like the experience of Borderless. Yeah, I always, no matter what the novel, whether or a piece of writing written by me, especially fiction, less nonfiction, but certainly fiction, I find it hard to summarize a book of fiction, but I'll take you up on the challenge that you've offered here. A book like Borderless would be hard to summarize, but if we had to put it in that conventional framing, right, as some of the trade reviewers have done and called it a novel in stories, I think a novel in short fiction is a fair label if one has to use one. Less novel in stories because they're not all stories. I see it as a fragmented novel or a novel in short fiction in the sense it's a novel made of stories, vignettes, and hybrid connectors, different chapters, but they can be seen as standalone chapters of short fiction, the main thread connecting the different chapters is the story, one can say, of the protagonist, Dia Mittal, who is a call center agent based in Mumbai. She serves American clientele when she works for Hansa Airlines. And that's sort of the opening, right? The novel opens with her working at a call center in Mumbai, serving Americans. And she eventually migrates to the United States. And before that, she travels to different parts and eventually the second half of the novel, she makes a home in California in greater Los Angeles. So if one had to tell me what's the story about, the story is about this call center agent who migrates from Mumbai and eventually makes a home in greater Los Angeles. That's why I find it hard to sort of give a conventional summary. So I would say Borderless is really about story of the Amethyl navigating her understanding, right? Starting with her fantasy of the American dream, and then kind of coming to the United States and navigating sort of her experience with the American dream. And this is weaved with stories of different characters from across the world of South Asian origin, very deliberately so, because for me, Borderless can be seen as a story of one central key protagonist, the Amitil, but it's as much about these so-called secondary characters of South Asian diaspora or South Asian migrants across the world. What connects all these characters, including the Amitil in the story, is they have all crossed borders internally, sometimes within India, other times within South Asia or across the world from South Asia to other parts of the world, including African islands in the Indian Ocean or the Caribbean and then the United States. And this was important to me because I think the book is resisting the idea that a good story needs is the story of transformation, say, of one character or maybe two or maybe three central characters. And the book sort of in moments, the novel at moments questions those ideas of good storytelling. So in short, like I said, you know, if I had to give it like one or two key words instead of a summary, which I always find it harder, I would say maybe the summary of this is that it's a self 
portrait, less, not so much of the author, but it's a community portrait. I see it as the story of 21st century global South Asians. I wanted to read a book where I could see my community reflected in its complexity, in its fragmentation. And what do they look like? What do they sound like? That was very important to me in the 21st century. And also the women, I think women characters, South Asian women from not just from South Asia or India, but from across the world. What do they look like? What do they sound like? What are our identities? Entities like, which is so different now in the 21st century, right, where migration is so much more a norm than, say, 100 years back, a South Asian woman, you know, might be a little more settled in the narrative of her identity than the global South Asian today, which is so, we lead so much more fragmented lives, right? And those are the kinds of fragmentation that I wanted to explore in the book. And that comes up in terms not just of identity of South Asians, it comes up definitely in the way they talk in their English, and it certainly comes up in the form of the novel itself, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so in writing this narrative that that does form and does have its different sections and different parts. Like it says that there's roots, R-O-O-T-S, and then there's roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. Right. And separating those sections and having a kind of experience for the reader in terms of the larger journeys happening, internal, external, all that good stuff that we talk about in the workshop. And so that editing experience you were talking about with Leland earlier, because you worked with Leland and, and Nahasi so much? Yes, with Leland. He was my yeah. editor, publisher and editor. Go Leland! How was that in terms of the conversations of recognizing the kind of breakup? Or do you feel like really, because you kind of said this, that he, he really kind of saw it for what it is, but I don't know if it changed dramatically. The manuscript did not change dramatically. Leland was a wonderful editor in the sense he made the prose leaner and that I appreciated. And we were talking about form, right? Like the fragmentation of the form. But there is also frame devices used in the book. This is completely a spoiler giveaway, but the way the story ends, especially, and it does not end as you know, with the story, the novel, and I'll leave it at that. So there is a frame device, which is very common in many ways to black and brown traditions of storytelling across the world, given our legacy with oral storytelling, but especially also I have desert roots. I haven't lived, neither have the earlier generations of my family or community. We have haven't lived in our desert roots. Those who come from the part of the Thar Desert that I come from, they have migration as part of their communal history. So, I mean, I think framing was a very important device in storytelling in our art forms in the desert and continue to be so. And those are some of the things that are important within the book. And those sometimes outside, uh, for readers outside of those contexts, is not fully transparent, is not meant to be fully transparent. So those are some of the conversations when it comes to form that Leland and I did have 
when we were going through the editorial process and I had to explain at times that, hey, this is the reason why this needs to be like that, you know, even if it may not follow or it may trip certain readers in certain ways, it needs to be like that because this is reflecting the world that the book has built in. And the wonderful part of working with Leland was once we talked, once there was this explanation, there was no editorial resistance that, hey, you know, this will trip the mainstream reader off. So every time I had to explain, Leland was like, okay, I get it. Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. And I loved that part of the editorial process with him. And the other parts where he was, like I said, really helpful was, was just making the prose leaner. So this sounds like it was a relatively smooth process for you overall. Was it kind of like a dream situation? It really was. I mean, I did mm-hmm. have to still explain. <laughs> there were many parts uh, of the book that I had to explain, even with the use of English. So as an Asian American author, Leland is completely aware. And we, we had these conversations where he was like, you know, I don't want you to translate this for the non-South Asian reader. But there were many other times when characters speak a certain way. For instance, there is a chapter in this book told from the perspective of Indian American motel owner in California. And that is told very deliberately in the form of an oral story. And he speaks a certain way. And so we had these conversations. Of course, my editor was very respectful of the fact that I needn't translate my English or make it more transparent, so to speak, for the mainstream readers. But there were many times, you know, when it was also like, you know, the question of translation. As BIPOC writers, I don't think we can fully evade that question of translation and not translate our English at all. The fact that so many of us are writing in English itself is a massive act of translation. So the question was, there were times in the editorial process when when we had conversations of how much to translate. I'm not saying I translated things for the mainstream reader, but the translation is always so much more nuanced and complex a process. So we did have those conversations. Okay, can we make this a little more, you know, legible. We did go back and forth between those, especially with characters like this Indian American motel owner talking in a story. But he was very understanding. And to that extent, I felt the moment I explained it it was a very smooth process. But that said, those conversations needed to be had. I just feel that we had those conversations way less than I would have had I think if I was working with a white American editor who is not familiar with the multiplicity of South Asian languages and how they can enter a mainstream English. That makes sense. And so then your book is preparing to come out into the world. It is March 2022. And... I don't know, like, how was that lead up process to publication? Did you kind of have a vision for what you wanted? Because I think being on the long list for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize is such a great thing to see for a debut. And it's a great prize to see because debuts can be on it. It is specifically an award for debuts, but usually really debuts also of that genre, because there have been people who have published numerous books, and then they do their first novel, and it's eligible for that award. I'm asking you two questions in one. <laughs> Realizing <laughs> where I talk. <laughs> like seeing that happen is, I don't know if it's heartening. And I don't want to say that awards are validating because there are so many books that don't win awards or don't get. And, and those books deserve to exist too, especially those who really kept to the honesty of their voice and vision for marginalized people. So I don't know if you had any specific expectations or not when you went into 
preparation for publication and then what comes with publication, right? You know, honestly, as a debut author, I just entered the scene as a debutante. I didn't know much in terms of getting the book out in the hands of readers. And those are the conversations while signing the contract. I did have with Leland, okay, what is the press going to do? And by then, I mean, also knowing the industry a little, having had these conversations with peers, I knew that the scene is so different with indie and small presses with such small budgets, right, in comparison to any of the big five. So, I mean, Signing that contract, I knew that I would not have a large budgeted publicist behind this book. I had minimal funds to even hire an independent publicist, which I did, but for a very small budget in comparison to so many of my peers who hired a publicist and knowing even the minimum that writers of color invest in that, I think in comparison to even the minimum, I invested a fraction of it. So I think my expectations honestly were pretty small considering the help I could hire, right? Reaching a debut book of of a writer who people barely know entering the market into the hands of readers requires a certain amount of infrastructure that comes, that's directly, I think, proportional for many with the size of his wallet or how much funds are invested into it. And considering the amount I was putting into hiring an independent publicist, I knew that our efforts were pretty small scale. So I was like, okay, we are both going to strategize and do our best with what comes of this. And that's where I left it. I think what I told myself is I'm going to put my energy into the effort, right? After that, I cannot control like so many of us. And that's where I put my focus on. And when the book got nominated for the Center for Fiction Award, I was pretty shocked because it's an indie debut. I know that, you know, this year we've had so many debuts, right? Being nominated for wonderful literary awards. But in general, when these happen, they're still from the bigger publishers, the more visible. So I was surprised, honestly, to see my book there. But it did happen. And you're right when you say what you say about awards. There is such an element of arbitration, right? Arbitrariness in this. There are just so many wonderful books and not all our wonderful books get nominated for awards. So it's not like I was seeking that validation or even honestly dreaming of it. But when that did happen, it did feel good somewhere. I realized that validation from our peers or from that industry does feel good. And that's about it. I think I, I, you know, I'm still processing that. And no, I'm not. Honestly, I'm not thinking as much, as much as as debut writers, we all want our books to be in the hands of readers. Where I'm focusing my energy, where I have focused and focusing even right now is just on the efforts. And we'll see. I mean, I feel it's still six months old. It's still kind of young to see where what fruit these efforts bear. But that's where I am currently. I feel like that's a very healthy way to look at it. <laughs> I mean, I just be honest, like this is my bandwidth. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. We made a good book. I think that's the sanest way to look at it, you know, at what one can mm-hmm. control, right? That's mm-hmm. how I see it. But it's, you know, it's the idealist in me, you know, in terms of books also, the connection with capitalism is like the reach, right? What you're talking mm-hmm. about, of course, it's the effort as authors we control, but then we are also talking about the system, right? Which there are so many wonderful books, But which wonderful books land up in the hands of the readers? Sort of a larger readership that too is tied with capitalism, right? And how much funds have been invested in that infrastructure or who has access to investing those kinds of funds, whether it's through their own budget 
or through a publisher's budget. So, mm-hmm. yeah, effort versus capitalism is a whole another longer conversation, I feel. Yeah. And I also wonder, because a question, and maybe it's really kind of somewhat pedestrian, but I think it's, I get why people ask it, is this kind of blanket question of, is it better to publish with an indie press or a big five? And I think in a lot of ways, additionally, people expect these kind of succinct, easy answers for things where there are benefits to both and there are downsides to both, I guess. But really, it's about what's the expectation. So when you're saying the experience was good and da 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 and if it is amounting to you as a author, having a healthy experience where you felt like your work was safe, to me, that's what matters. And that could be at an indie press, and it could be at a big five. But it really depends on the people at the end of the day, and if that's what you want. Because if it's commercialism, because I remember right. working with an author who's, I'm tired of being critically acclaimed. I want to be commercially successful. Right. I just said to myself, I don't know how to do that for you. <laughs> right? I was just like, you don't know. You don't know. And people in publishing don't know. We hope, we pray, we try. Sometimes we have the budget. Sometimes we don't. More often we don't. So if the investment is purely for a certain level of success that no one can guarantee, but in some ways can be orchestrated with the right around money and luck and timing, et cetera. Sure. I, I don't know that that is the most fulfilling way for me personally to pursue being an author. Right. Because I feel like I'll be disappointed way too often. Right. So much is not under one's control. But then, you know, I think what you're talking about is also what brings us fulfillment on the path of one particular book, right? One book at a time uh, for authors Mm -hmm. as well. And I think I think just knowing what one wants out of one's book, I think that intentionality goes a long way. I will not judge writers who are saying that I'm writing to pay for my health insurance or to pay for my bills, right? And I've certainly felt that need and certainly continue to do so. But at the same time, I knew that my biggest intention with this book is I wanted this book to be out in the hands of the readers, but I wanted this book to stand on its own terms. That was my biggest intention. And that's when I decided. That's what helped me decide where will this book fit with the big five or the indie press. And that's when I knew also then what would be the kind of infrastructural efforts that would be channeled, right? The degree or the scale of infrastructural efforts that would go toward reaching this book in the hands of the readers. And with a smaller press, I was much more realistic. But the biggest satisfaction on this journey really has been with the editorial journey, with the acquisitions process, and then getting it out on the readers. And then also seeing so many of the reviews, actually, which surprised me how many readers got it. And they understood the book on the book's terms, even if it draws in its aesthetic, in its use of language so much from a non-Western world. So I felt like that was like the most fulfilling part for me for this book. But I, I do get it. Like there would be authors and this could be possibly me with a future book as well, who'd be like, okay, now I want this bill. Now I want this book, right? To pay for my health insurance. And that goes back to knowing yourself, I think, too, right? Of being able to say, okay, well, this is what Namrata wanted Borderless to do. And maybe... I don't know, like this road trip mystery novel might be the one to pay the bills in the capacity. I don't know. 
Right. Not to say you're working on that. I don't know. Again, but <laughs> but if you chose to, I feel like you could nail it. If you put your heart into it, I'm sure you could because you're such a great writer in general. Thank you. I agree. It's it's about knowing oneself. But I have to say, I mean, system is not the right word, right? But also life circumstances. I felt I could, I knew this is what I wanted for Borderless. But I also knew this could happen with Borderless because I am a mother to a four-year-old with a partner who's picking up the bigger bulk of our monthly paychecks. I feel if I were a single mother, perhaps, I don't know, maybe I would have thought differently with my first book who had to pay all the bills, right, for me and my son by myself, that as well. So I have a partner with whom I'm sharing my bills here. That helps so much on the writing journey. I can say adamantly that does. Especially from where I sit right now, it really does. (laughs) And when I was married to my partner had much better benefits than I did as an editorial assistant. And then he lost his job and he was on my publishing benefits, which weren't horrible. It was just, I make less money than someone who works civil service. I mean, I feel like we also said that not just here during the recording, but pre-recording is that you make certain choices based on circumstances and the privilege to be able to make certain choices when money is not at the forefront every single day, every single time is to me very freeing as an artist. Absolutely. It allows me to be at my best and at my most experimental and challenging, even though it doesn't always feel good when you don't finish or you don't know where, where it's going. But when you do figure it out, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I appreciate you talking about sort of, you know, the privilege as well, right, of what we can and cannot pay for. And that's that's something I wanted to point out as well with the support of my partner is like, you know, coming from an academic background to this world, I also feel like the romance in some ways, the perceived romance of art being somewhere sheltered or shielded, right, from concerns and the privileges of class. I think these two are so tied in together and, you know, kind of try and remember that. <laughs> right. And also the Namrata who started Borderless is not necessarily the Namrata who was able to finish it. Like, <laughs> sometimes we have to become that person. Right. For sure. With a 17-year yeah journey, I can assure you that. And with motherhood, right? <laughs> right. Right. That affects it. Let me tell you, my divorce put a little more stuff in perspective. And then therapy put even more stuff into perspective where I was like, oh, wow, I can go deeper here. So I, I really do think these experiences just make richer books in general. And we ask larger questions or maybe smaller questions that have larger impact. I don't know. I'll think on that. But thank you so, so much for talking to me, taking the time to talk about your experience this year as someone debuting and that whole journey to get borderless out now from 713 Books. I encourage y'all to buy from bookshop.org or just your local indie directly and it's funny when I go to your website it directly links to you and me which is an Asian owned independent bookstore in New York City Manhattan specifically and that's you why you and me and me so I can't wait I need to visit that bookstore too so 
I want to make sure to support and buy all the stuff. Thank you for this time. I know it's morning where you are. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Such an honor, Minorities in Publishing. You know, it's a podcast and just your work in general, Jen, just admired and respected for so long. So totally honored to be here. And I love you sharing the detail about you and me books. I didn't know that. Yeah, that it connected the book to it. So that's that's a great note (laughs) for me to end on. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Celebrate the bookstores. <laughs> yeah. Bookstores. I'd highly encourage y'all to get it because at 170 pages, friends, come on now. <laughs> if you're going through a couple boroughs on the New York City subway, you can, yes. <laughs> you can get to town on Borderless. So highly recommend. Thank you again. And Namrata, how can people reach out to you? You have a lovely organized website, my I just plug real quick. I love how everything is in its spot. There's a lot of great information. You have all the things. It's great. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, the best way I think to reach out is also on the website emails. I'm very accessible via emails. My email is on the website, but also social media. I'm active on both Twitter and Instagram. So please stop by, say hello anytime. I love hearing from other story nerds in our world. And you do consultations or whatnot? Well, I'm open to it on the side mm-hmm. every now and then. Right now, well, Monday onward, I start teaching. So this, oh, the, the quarters okay. when I'm teaching, it gets tight. So I would say on the side, it's not completely regular. It's as and when my schedule allows. Okay. But you can inquire <laughs> with her at her website, N-A-M-R-A-T-A-P-O-D-D-A-R.com. Namrata Podar. Would love to hear back. <laughs> thank you so, so much again, Namrata, for being on. Thank you for having me, Jen. And thank you all for listening. Once again, you can find the podcast on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com, on Twitter at Minorities in Pub, and wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Spotify. Take care, everybody.